0: Welcome to the MJSDL podcast. I'm
1: Betty Zhang. I'm Michael Lang.
2: And I'm Michael Gardner.
1: Today's podcast is about the Paris Agreement under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And although the journal provides a platform for the expression and discussion of ideas, we feel obligated to say that the views of our speakers are not necessarily those of the MJSDL.
2: That said, we gathered interviews from a variety of speakers who were present at our recent MJSDL Paris Agreement Colloquium.
0: We'd like to thank everyone who attended the colloquium and a special thanks to those who agreed to do interviews with us. We're happy to be able to share what we learned about the Paris Agreement with those who couldn't make it to the colloquium.
1: So with that in mind, we'd like to thank Christopher Campbell de Ruflet, Professor Tracy Bach, Professor Mary claire Cordonnier-Sager, David Kuhn, Professor Bruce Pardee, and Géraud de la sur saint genie for their contributions.
2: To start things off, we had to figure out what the Paris Agreement was. To help us with that, we spoke with Christopher Campbell de Rufflet. Christopher is a Trudeau scholar and a doctoral candidate at the University of Toronto.
3: The Paris Agreement, the new kid on the block of international law. Yeah. The Paris Agreement is a new treaty and it's the first time that we have a legally binding treaty that compels all states to do something towards climate change. The UN Convention in 1992 set the general goal of averting dangerous climate change, but it wasn't all that clear how we would achieve that. The Kyoto Protocol in 1997 was an attempt at framing how we would do that, at designing a path towards avoiding dangerous climate change, and it had uh, developed nations like Canada and The U.S. and Europe take the lead and really assume the bulk of the effort of decarbonizing the global economy, starting with themselves. And that didn't work. Canada dropped out. The U.S. just didn't go with the Kyoto Protocol, and it didn't work. So the Paris Agreement was a take-two at uh, facing this problem with clearer science and with rising sea levels and more and more anxious populations um, asking for action on climate, climate change all around the world. I think of the New York March on climate change. That was a major march. And, uh, and in a way, we did it. We have a treaty that compels all states to set for themselves climate targets. It's the NDC's nationally determined contributions. And uh, so, so that's definitely a big, big step forward.
4: We
0: also learned a lot about the differentiated obligations and country groups that formed around the negotiations
4: from Professor Bach. Professor Bach teaches at Vermont Law School. I think when you're in the trenches and attending these pre-Paris, and then even more in the trenches, most people don't know that in 2015, the sub-body of the COP, it was called the Ad Hoc Working Group for the Paris Agreement, or APA, or I'm sorry, A- A- ADP, APA is the new one, I apologize. So, it's the Durban platform, which is the entity that was negotiating this. Durban is a place where COP17 took place, where the mandate to come up with a new agreement, which we now call the Paris Agreement, uh, was given. The long and short of it is, I attended all the slogging drafting sessions throughout the year. And um, so, I think I have a tendency not to draw a hard line pre-Paris, the world pre-Paris and post, because in reality, those changes happen in a more subtle fashion, because folks are predicting, like lawyers do when trying to decide how to proceed in a case, they're predicting against a certain backdrop. And so from 2011 until 2015, there were, all the countries in the world were meeting to essentially devise what would be in the Paris Agreement. So... Post Paris, the world that's different? Well, one, the Kyoto Protocol will not, um, will sunset in 2020. And what that really means is that the Kyoto Protocol only required developed countries to mitigate. Period. And the Paris Agreement doesn't. It's considered an all in approach so that developing countries like China and India are the probably the most industrialized, most emitting um, developing countries that we think of, um, they now are obliged under the Paris Agreement, because each country has ratified it, to file their own, come up and file their nationally determined contribution, and which is a voluntary in terms of achieving those contribution pledges. But what is obligatory under the Paris Agreement, that developing countries a large number of them have agreed to, is going through the process of pledging them, mm-hmm. reviewing them, and being part of a global stock take, meaning collectively responsible for what we might call procedural obligations. So, to be fair, even though I said that I think there's not quite a bright line between pre- and post-Paris, certainly, one, the 11-month ratification was the fastest on record, faster than the UNFCCC and wicked faster than the Kyoto Protocol. Um, Second, I think the real answer that most people give is that the political will that that embodies um, shows that there's increasing momentum. And I think when you tease that out, since I'm a lawyer and and I tend to think of government political will, the whole sub-government, what what we think of as sub-national, which includes private actors like, you know, nonprofits like my law law school or businesses um, or advocacy organizations, that they, I think the world has changed that way with Paris, that that political momentum shows, in particular, there's a number of businesses who've been advocating as a group at the COPs for a global carbon price. And they're doing that defensively, because they see the writing on the wall. And they want to make sure that they don't get trapped in a particular jurisdiction, whether it's the US or the EU, or a state like mine, Vermont, which tends to be more tax happy, um, that they don't want to be regulated differently. And they're trying to get ahead of the regulatory curve. So that's probably a a really big part of the world post-Paris. That there's a lot of political momentum, and it's fueled not just by governments and voters, but by private actors like companies.
0: Um, it's great to hear.
1: Professor Party, who teaches law at Queen's University, had a more skeptical view of the structure and efficacy of the agreement. The, the
5: premise it's based upon, along with uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, you know, as was Kyoto and 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 most of the negotiations between uh, then and now, is the principle of uh, Common uh, but differentiated responsibilities. And what that really means in practice is that the developed nations should take on obligations to reduce greenhouse gases and the developing nations should not, or at least not have to yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, uh, I think, is um, an untenable premise for climate change reduction, or sorry, greenhouse gas reduction partly because the atmosphere and the filling of it with greenhouse gases is a classic tragedy of the commons problem. And we know from that model that one of the solutions that you require is a rule that that applies equally to everybody. So if you only have select members of that group doing things that other members don't, you actually don't achieve very much. That's particularly so in this situation because uh, the major developing countries China, India, and a few others now account for uh, well over half of the world's greenhouse gases annually, and the proportion of those gases will continue to increase over time. So, the longer they don't have to act, the worse the problem becomes, and all of the time, money, and effort uh, expended in developed countries really goes for naught. And because it goes for naught, and because they take on extra economic costs, it's actually not something they will end up doing, even if they've said they would in the Paris deal. So, all in all, I think it's, uh, we're probably better off without it.
0: The big question with the Paris Agreement is, of course, its implementation, particularly the accountability mechanisms. Dr. Marie-Claire Seger talked to us about the role trade agreements can play in enforcing the Paris Agreement.
6: We're seeing a lot of innovation. It's as though our regional trade agreements and our bilateral trade agreements and also our investment agreements are increasingly um, offering opportunities for countries to see what works and to try new things out. The European Union has possibly put in place some of the most innovative stuff at the moment when you track across the sort of 300 370 trade agreements that have been signed um, that try to take into account some of these issues um, especially if you count the investment chapters or provisions i think the most interesting innovations are found in four places the first is a commitment to sustainable development in the principles or the preamble of the agreement that sets it as a purpose and that can have interpretive value once you have a trade tribunal that is set up to address mainly economic issues, knowing that part of the purpose and the interpretive um, weight of that Um, object and purpose is actually to also achieve sustainable development in the countries, not just to uh, push economic uh, growth. So that's the first and very helpful and kind of not so difficult part, the preamble. But the second part where I think there is a little more um, uh, experimentation, but also almost kind of a consensus starting to form, is that you do need exceptions, windows, reservations, ways to be able to um, not apply trade disciplines where it would be perverse to do so. And so there many different forms of exceptions that can apply to a climate change um, set of concerns inside a trade treaty, but um, if you don't think that through, you can end up with some very silly situations where uh, a trade agreement is actually preventing a government from regulating in an area that it needs to, because they've, for example, guaranteed rights to investors who wanted to explore oil and gas, thinking they might want to exploit it later, and then they're frozen without being able to say, all right, priorities have changed, we're trying to move away from fossil fuels, regulations are needed, and and the question is, well, how will you compensate us for what was a gleam in an investor's eye before you knew about these problems? So those those exceptions, those reservations, those windows are the second area. Third area, which I think is actually probably the most um, exciting, is actually where you try to liberalise trade, you try to guarantee rights for investors, and you do it in areas that are important for the new green economy. And I think that's the most innovative area where we can do some work. We've got some examples in many different trade agreements, anything from promotion to organic agriculture in one area to promotion of eco-innovation and renewable energy technologies or REDD+, in another trade agreement. And we've seen examples of all of this. It depends on the actual trade flows that you are changing by signing your trade or investment agreement. There's no point in guaranteeing renewable energy um, subsidies in a trade agreement if there aren't any renewable energy subsidies going back and forth between those partners anyway. Um, So you have to look at the case-by-case, the impact assessments and the other procedural changes that have been made to allow for transparency, to allow for more joined-up decision-making in national capitals, to allow for public participation, to allow for amicus briefs in trade tribunal and investment tribunal decision-making. All of those procedural changes are probably the other area where we've seen a lot of growth. A colleague of mine just recently released a book on UNSA trials proceedings and the transparency agreement that has been signed in that framework, and it's Very clear that expectations have changed in in recent years, and I'm not surprised. I mean, you have, again, your hundreds of thousands of educated people looking at these things and saying, hmm, this is no longer the purview of a few experts in a national capital. This is something that's important to all of us, and we want to think about it carefully and make sure we've got it right. And, And that's not a bad thing. It's better policymaking.
2: We also got a different perspective on who can play an important role outside of the national actors within countries. The last thing that we can say about Trump is that he's only the president uh, in a federal
3: system. States uh, like California will continue to act. California is part of the Western Climate Initiative with Quebec and Ontario, and possibly Jalisco and Mexico. So states will act, corporations will act. There are all kind of voluntary pledges by corporations who are assuring themselves and their shareholders and their clients and the communities that they will take action. And citizens will act, you and I, Uh, maybe committed uh, to a greater or lesser extent to stop using our car and go vegetarian and use the airplane less and install solar panels. So there are a lot of things that are happening beyond the White House, and these things will continue happening. I think that's quite clear from the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement actually... Uh, reflects that it calls on to non-party stakeholders to take action There, are this provisions of the adoption decision that directly call on to and recognize the efforts of uh, non-party stakeholders and that's only bound to increase in the next four uh, coming years.
0: Okay. David Kuhn also provided an interesting perspective on the role of provinces and how changing cultures can help us meet the obligations under the Paris Agreement.
7: Critical absolutely critical because that's where most of the jurisdiction lies. That's where most of the action occurs. That's where most of the policy levers, fiscal levers exist. And that's where government is uh, much closer to the citizens uh, than the federal government. So uh, the provinces um, and municipalities uh, are the ones that have the biggest uh, role to play um, in terms of leadership. And uh, in terms of actually um, um, exercising policy and putting in place measures that will help uh, drive uh, action. So uh, that's why it's so important that um, that civil society is engaged and focused on the municipalities, on the provincial governments around questions of of. Uh, broadly, what kind of society do they want? You know, Quebec to become, or Ontario to become, or New Brunswick to become, or Newfoundland to become, um, w- while reducing dependence on on fossil fuels. Like, so, 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 they're big questions. So that's why I said in my talk, this is really a, a societal project or a projet de société to to uh, engage citizens uh, to talk about where do we want our society to go recognizing we need to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel doing that Raises all kinds of social, political, uh, economic, and cultural issues that need to be addressed um, in a comprehensive way, holistically, and so to me that's really exciting to talk about. What you know, I grew up in Quebec at a, a time of, of tremendous change. I mean, the crucible, uh, the a political crucible here, really shaped the way I, I, I see possibilities because so much change occurred in Quebec during that that time. Uh, from I mean, uh, I was not old enough uh, with the early part of the Quiet Revolution to be paying attention, but the latter part of it, uh, where the impacts were really beginning to felt be felt. You know, I was the first cohort through the uh, Quebec education system that wasn't you know wasn't run by the Catholic Church anymore. It was run by everyone was excited by you know the Department of Education. Uh, so, so the sense that um, societies can change and uh, that it can happen fairly rapidly socially as it did in Quebec, economically as it did in Quebec with the focus on sort of um, uh, developing made in Quebec uh, businesses and and, and building them out to be really uh, economic drivers for the province um, had a huge impact on me and uh, so social and economic change, political change um, so it's The possibilities are there in our own history, and I think that's what we have to think about in our provinces at a provincial level, is um, what in our history can we draw on in thinking about the kind of transformation we have to make? And there's lots of great lessons. There's lots of great examples, Um, and we have a set of values that have developed over time that are rooted in that history, Um, some of them a little bit, you know, kind of under the radar these days, but that we can draw on to uh, collectively develop the kinds of approaches, the kinds of steps, the kinds of measures that we need to put in place, we want to put in place uh, to, to... to shift our society towards one that is more sustainable and more equal.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, And going hand in hand with that, what do you think is the federal government's role in facilitating, um, you know, answers to these questions of how we view, how we want our society to be structured at the provincial level, and what can they do to ensure that we work towards, you know, non-dependency on fossil fuels?
7: Well, the federal government has a particular role um, in a number of areas one is fiscally for sure um, in terms of its tax tax powers and and the way it currently subsidizes the fossil fuel sector and so it can you know uh, remove phase out those subsidies. Um, it also has an important role in terms of redistributing um, wealth in a sense to provide uh, financing to support the efforts of the provincial and municipal level um, uh, to bring about this transforma- transformation. Um, so those are important roles. It also has an important role to, uh, and not the federal government as sort of an abstract body, but the, pr- the prime minister uh, in particular has a, an important role to um, um, model what uh, needs to be, uh, uh, model the sort of transformation to. Um, to, to engage in a narrative or a discourse that reflects the kind of transformation uh, that we need to make, um, and to uh, do so from, the from a democratic perspective, that, that this has to be done in a way that engages citizens um, and put in place um, new ways of doing that, because uh, fundamentally that's what has to be done. Uh, new ways of doing that, so that, p- that citizens are engaged in democracy, um, uh, not just voting, but in between elections, uh, in 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 meaningful discussions that are going to uh, make a difference in terms of how we move forward in this transfer- transformation. Okay,
4: great.
1: Professor Bach outlined some of the key priorities that need addressing to meet our obligations.
4: So I think we could get close. Closer to it, I think fundamentally what we have to do is shift our energy sources. There's just no two ways about that. Most people who who study this say that we have to electrify everything and then, of course, have to have a clean source for our electricity it's a two-step process um and and then i mean that's that's the that piece of it you know with economic development in our lives certainly um india would say that we should all become vegetarians and that's in part the sustainable aspect of their lifestyle that lets them electrify more and more with not so clean sources But, but, but we do need to look at our food and we can look at waste and obviously, transport is a piece of that, too. So we have to go back to a sectoral analysis. But fundamentally, it's going to be very hard to stay, to achieve the Paris Agreement objective of well below 2C.
2: Of course, that's assuming that the Paris Agreement
5: makes it.
1: Here's Professor Party once again voicing his skepticism about the agreement's survival.
5: Well, I am inclined to think and, and indeed hope that... Uh, Paris will now be rather short-lived. So what effect it might have had on the climate change uh, arena um, will probably now be changed because of the new administration in the U.S. That's not to be for sure, because who knows what's going to happen, and and their statements require interpretation at this stage. But I would like to think that they will either uh, withdraw or simply ignore the agreement. And that's good news to me because I've always been a skeptic about Paris. I think it's badly constructed and based upon a poor premise. Um,
2: Given our legitimate concerns about the Trump administration's promise to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, we asked Professor Bach what actions the U.S. could take.
4: So, of course, the official line that most people take that I'll mimic is that, in theory, the Mr. Trump candidate um, could be different than Mr. Trump the president. Um, And so it's not clear whether his campaign stump speech, which included, quote, canceling the Paris agreement, which he actually can't do um, because while the. US is a very large country and a large emitter, um, we actually aren't the world. Um, so um, so the question would be withdrawal. And um, you probably know I, I won't go through the you know the long analysis, but in short, I think there's three ways that the US could, have a negative impact on the Paris Agreement. Okay. So the first two are withdrawal methods that are right under the Paris Agreement. I think it's Article 23, because, of course, we always make articles in here about withdrawal because, in fact, Canada did that from the Kyoto Protocol. That's true. So you Shame know that well. Well, it's it's actually, as an aside, it's lovely to be here. I often present in Europe, where I'm the bad boy on the, the panel, and sitting next to Canadians, it's like, Not only I feel your pain, but often uh, Canada would get the... a, a fossil of the day award from International Can, much more than the U.S. ever did. So I, I'm, I'm I'm feeling good, yeah. So, um, so to answer your question seriously, there are two ways that the U.S. can withdraw officially under the Paris Agreement. One is the one that everybody's talking about that it would take in total four years. And so that a uh, Trump administration could not do that so easily. And that's simply by withdrawing from the Paris Agreement and the four years math comes in that you cannot Uh, file your notice to withdraw until after one year after your ratification. And then it takes three years for that withdrawal to come into effect. So one plus three equals four. But a lot of people have overlooked the last subclause of that um, article, which says that any country or party that withdraws from the UNFCCC, the framework convention on which the Paris Agreement is built, then they are... uh, Um, I don't think the word is immediately, but that they are also then considered withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. And if you go back, you double back to the UNFCCC, you'll see that it only takes one year to withdraw. So that would be a speedier approach. The complication, again, I will keep this short, I promise, but the complication on that side is um, the UNFCCC was ratified by the Senate. In contrast, the Paris Agreement was ratified, and that's a legal term both international and domestic, so I'm using it domestically. The way we ratified it was under what's called the executive agreements um, action that actually most international treaties in the United States have been ratified through. It's a little-known fact (laughs) because we in civics classes in the United States learn that the Senate has to uh, ratify treaties. But in fact, that is... In, it is in our Constitution, but there are other powers delegated in the Constitution to the executive branch, to the president, that not just Democrat, but Republican uh, administrations for 100 years have been using. Okay, so But if um, the Trump administration should go for that second approach, i.e. withdrawal for the UNFCCC, the speedier approach, at least on surface, uh, the Trump administration will be immediately sued um, by a, a number of entities uh, probably mostly NGOs, um, but because it, it's not clear that, that that would be a separation of powers problem because the Senate ratified that treaty. It's easier if—sorry, Pres- uh, President I'm trying not to say President Trump. It'd be easier if Mr. Trump um, chose to withdraw from the Paris Agreement because then it would be an executive act countermanding another executive act. Finally, here's the real thing. This is what I really think will happen is the third thing, the way the U.S. could bollocks the Paris Agreement or certainly slow it down, is um, just not do what we said we'd do. Because there's nothing in the Paris Agreement to hold us accountable for our pledges. We could still go through all the procedural obligations. We've made the pledge Mm -hmm. 26 to 28% off of uh, 2005 by 2025. Um, We have in place largely a regulatory structure under the Clean Air Act that would get us part of the way. Our states are doing a fair amount um, to get us even further along. And then markets and private actions and consumer behavior uh, in theory will propel us maybe even further down the. That curve, so but the but uh, a Trump administration could um, drop the clean power plan rules, basically, uh, or just not enforce them. There's paths of least resistance, but let me be clear, especially to folks in Canada listening to this. Although you all seem to know much more about the U.S. system than many of the average U.S. citizen, I think uh, if the EPA under potentially the nominee uh, Scott Pruitt should choose at the end of this litigation that's going on uh, challenging the Clean Power Plan, we call the CPP, if they're held up, upheld, I should say, and then it's about agency administrator di- uh, discretion in enforcing them, and he drops the ball mm. deliberately or, well, it'll be deliberate, um, then he's going to get sued as well. So, And that's what comes back to it. So in the end, where do I sit when I put on my big girl pants and say, what comes next? So one, there's going to be a lot of suits. And I don't know if you know, but Scott Pruitt's, Pruitt is evidently famous for saying when he woke up every day as the Oklahoma attorney general, he would go into the office and sue the Obama administration and then go home. And that, that was his achievement for the day. And so I guess there is this quid pro quo, isn't here? isn't there? Yeah. And that's where Mass versus EPA came from. That was the Bush administration being sued because EPA EPA said, oh, we don't have the power to regulate um, carbon dioxide under the Clean Air Act. It's not a pollutant. So so that's going to go forward. And I think what that will do is uh, level off kind of the whiplash I think so many folks are feeling from the Obama to the potential Trump administration. But certainly we can put a damper on it. If I could do one last footnote, I My um, glass-half-full analysis is watching what we call the basic countries. That's a negotiating group at the COPs, and that would be um, uh, B for Brazil, A-S for Afrique du Sud, South Africa, I for India, and C for China. And it was those countries that came together at Copenhagen in 2015 who did that, quote, backdoor deal with um, that dismayed a lot of other developing countries that basically broke this log jam post Kyoto Protocol that uh, the idea of common but differentiated responsibilities meant developed countries had ob- mitigation obligations, developing didn't. And of course we know by the time the Kyoto Protocol came online, China had surpassed the US as a, uh, a global, in aggregate, not per capita, uh, emitter. So that, that group, has already stepped up to the challenge. The closing plenary at COP22 in Marrakesh, which I have the privilege to witness, close up and personal, um, it uh, included a lot of quote last minute huddles at the end. Um, And it was fascinating, once you know who's who, to see China and Brazil and South Africa lead the effort to get other developing countries to agree with the final decision. My point is is they have been, I would like to think, feel empowered to step into that leadership role, that the Paris Agreement has enough in it for them to get them to want to be in that leadership role, to ramp up mitigation and adaptation efforts equally, hopefully, for developing countries under the Paris Agreement. So as the U.S. maybe sunsets in the uh, last eight years of leadership that the Obama administration took on climate change internationally, my hope is that those countries will step into that void. And I think I've already seen the first step at the closing of COP22.
0: After assessing the challenges of implementation, we asked the speakers if the Paris Agreement will actually keep warming below 2 degrees.
7: I think we'll blow past it. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I don't think that uh, most governments around the world uh, either understand or are willing to acknowledge what's really involved in avoiding 2 degrees, never mind 1.5 degrees. Um, And uh, neither have they really... Acknowledge publicly what the consequences are of blowing past two degrees. So on both ends of the equation um, They are keeping their citizenry in the dark really in terms of what are the real consequences we're facing uh, And um, what's involved in actually to try and meet the Paris target
4: So I want to say yes because I've said a lot of glass half full things (laughs) up until this point But I would do a disservice to whomever listens to this to say yes uh, unequivocally. It's a very footnoted yes. First of all, just to be clear, because I've heard it several times today, the Paris Agreement Article 2, it's Article 2, which is considered its objective, or I think it actually says aim at times, um, to distinguish it from the purpose, Article 2 of the UNFCCC, is well below 2C, not 2C, well below. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, maybe not blood, but certainly sweat and tears that went into well below being added. And then with the uh, corollary piece, there's a clause in there in Article 2 that says, and essentially, shooting for 1.5 C. That would be great. So taking the well below 2 C, the scientists tell us at this point, um, if we just look at the AR5 and the pathways that are at the end of, I'm sorry, the IPCC's most recent, uh, the fifth assessment report, you'll see that we are, because of Locked in warming that's associated with our lifestyles up until this point. That even if we went to zero tomorrow, we all, you know, all economies stopped ceasing, we all went back to a cave, you know, we, et cetera, right? Which is what um, many folks who um, either don't believe in climate change or don't believe in, uh, I guess, the more subtle thing in human-induced climate change, think that's what, that's what we have to do. Of course, we don't. But even if we did, we'd be locked into very close to 2C. So we already would exceed that well below 2C. The Paris Agreement, when you look at Article 2 and then again Article 4, I think it's 4.1, talks about uh, peaking carbon as soon as possible and if you look back to drafts of the paris agreement which i followed throughout the year um, you'll see that it was uh, for a while 2050 2030 there are actual dates on it and in the final negotiations you could not get all parties to come to consensus on a certain date but most people take that to be mid-century at the latest and so that's why you see the ndc's i was just listening about the pan-canadian framework which I just so enjoyed learning about here this afternoon, and you see dates that are shorter term 2020 and 2025, then you see 2030 and you see 2050. You don't see folks talking post 2050, partly because if we're continuing at business as usual, we are almost literally toast at that point um, because we're on the path to be at 4C. Uh, with what is going on right now, and if there increases, certainly at 6C, and that's just something that the scientists can't predict because it's much warmer than we have any data to, to predict from.
8: Well, I, w- I would rephrase it in a different way, okay. if you don't mind. Um, the thing is that with the, this two degree, is that it's not actually a, a sp- it's not a, a, a reference that has been purely uh, defined by the scientific community. Okay. So there is a lot of political uh, um, uh, aspects in the choice of that precise reference. Uh, it's a reference that first has been um, mentioned by the IPCC in its first reports back in 1995, and after it has been took by the political uh, responsible as a, a number that You know, everyone could agree about this number. We see, in fact, that is not the case because some want to keep the temperature below 1.5 degrees. Uh, So I would say it's a a compromise, a political compromise that reference of the two degrees. Now, is it possible to achieve it? It can be. Uh, Some say it's too late. Some say it can be. Uh, Well, I think it's maybe too early to to have that answer. It basically will depend on what we will do uh, the next 10 to 15 years. And uh, so this this what is that? What's the next? Uh, blah, blah, blah. During the next uh, ten to fifteen years, we're gonna have to implement major uh, climate politics if we want to be sure that we can achieve that goal. Uh, honestly, it's quite difficult at this stage to assess what will be exactly the the the, the future of the U.S. politics on on this topic. Um, Trump is a, a person who says something and the other, uh, and and the opposite. Uh, he has said that climate change was a hoax, but he recently acknowledged that there was some uh, connectivity, I think, uh, between uh, human actions and climate change. So it's really difficult to assess. Besides, um, I think... Well, maybe we'll pull out. Maybe we'll not just comply with the agreement. Um, I think it will be difficult to keep the Paris Agreement without the the U.S. That's the first thing. Uh, But even if the the U.S. stays in the uh, Paris Agreement, we have the sense that it's not going to be a major player. So the question now is who will take the leadership? Mm -hmm. So far, it has been China and the U.S., now the fact that Trump maybe wants to withdraw or to be less involved in the, in the UN process uh, opens the door to new, new potential leaders. Would it be the EU? Would it be India, uh, Austra- um, Brazil? Uh, so that that's the first, the first thing. The other thing is that if the US are not that much committed into the Paris Agreement, It would probably, and it has happened before uh, when the the, the U.S. decided not to ratify Kyoto, it will open the the door to another, uh, to others, uh, plurilateral or bilateral initiatives. Uh, My point is that if we lose the sense of universal membership uh, in the Paris Agreement, uh, what we are going to probably see is that uh, reinforcements of uh, climate clubs or smaller initiatives uh, between states outside the frame of the U.N. process.
1: We'd like to thank you all for joining. That concludes our podcast on the Paris Agreement.
0: We hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned as much as we did while we were conducting these interviews.
2: We'd like to thank everyone who agreed to sit down with us. Special thanks to the MJSDL's executive and other editors for all their help on the day of the colloquium. Music credits go to Jesse Beetson.